what I think is really cool is that, yeah, we have for the first time a new way to fund or subsidize this infrastructure that we need. And that could be energy infrastructure, but it's kind of other infrastructure. But I think like if we kind of step back, what I think is truly, truly amazing, and, and I call it kind of like Darwin's benches, is that Bitcoin is integrating into so many different aspects of our society uh, and people haven't fully gained an appreciation or an awareness of just how much it's infiltrated. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome and thanks for joining us here again. Today we had the pleasure to speak to Miss Magdalena Gronowska. Mags is currently a consultant for PRTI. She previously worked as VP of Business Development at CoinKite. She also helped 3IQ IPO, North America's first regulated TSX-listed Bitcoin ETF. She was also a co-founder of Citadel 256, an enterprise-scale Bitcoin mining company, and MetaMesh LLC, a crypto consulting and multimedia company. She helps oversee the $215 million Quadriga Digital Currency Collapse as a Supreme Court appointed bankruptcy inspector, directing the trustee in decisions on asset recovery and representing 76,000 victims. Yes, Mags has been in just about every sector of this industry. We cover a range of topics focusing on how Bitcoin mining and renewable energy are mutually beneficial. We cover climate change, energy markets, proof of work versus proof of stake, socialism versus capitalism, Quadriga, mining with hog shit, and firefighting. We talk at length about renewable energy and its intersection with Bitcoin in this conversation. It's important to first lay a bit of groundwork for people that may be new to understanding why Bitcoin is so significant to energy, specifically renewables. The problem with renewable energy is twofold. It's capital intensive to set up and the energy creation is intermittent, specifically with wind and solar for obvious reasons. Traditionally, this cost is subsidized by governments, which means we're all paying to create sustainable energy whether we agree with it or not. Additionally, the excess energy created by renewables can be wasted. There is simply no way to store it if it isn't used right away. Bitcoin can address both of these problems. It creates a constant buyer of excess energy. Miners can be set up to consume energy during times of excess generation, thereby monetizing the energy that would have otherwise been wasted. Bitcoin essentially creates a free market subsidy for renewable energy, and it is location agnostic. Bitcoin will continue to be attracted to the cheapest forms of energy available. This is beneficial to everyone and truly a free market phenomenon. As always, you can follow us at blue underscore collar BTC on Twitter, and you can send us an email at blue collar Bitcoin podcast at Gmail. You can follow Mags on Twitter at crypto underscore Mags. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you're using. Thank you. Blue Collar Bitcoin is sponsored by CoinKite. CoinKite is the manufacturer of the cold card, the block clock, and the open dime. The new cold card Mark IV is out in the wild. It retains the most robust security in the industry, allows you to air gap sign transactions if you're looking for the ultimate security in your cold storage. It does also allow a new feature which is near-field communication. This allows major convenience to the process. 
You're always in full control of your security. If you don't want NFC, you can disable it with software on the device. If you don't trust the software, you can disable it permanently by cutting a trace on the circuit board. You have ultimate control of your setup. From air-gapped cold storage, where the device never interacts with the computer, to the NFC convenience and speed while still maintaining security. Whether you want absolute robust security or total convenience, the Cold Card Mark IV has you covered. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is also partnered with Ledin. Ledin is a very unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin forward perspective. They are the first ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof of reserve attestation where an independent public accountant regularly attests that the company is properly accounting for client assets. Simply put, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you've listened to this show much at all, you've certainly noticed that we advise our listeners to be careful, manage risk, and not get over leveraged. And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle-specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Ledin offers a menu of powerful financial services. Keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Ledin Bitcoin-backed loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy a new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Ledin Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Ledin dollar loans and their trading service, if available. You can look into Ledin's well-architected menu of services at Ledin.io. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. What's up, everybody? I'm Dan. Joined by Josh and Mags. This is a long time coming. And I am going to go ahead and say, I think this is going to be our most stressful episode because <laughs> the depth and breadth of where we can go based on your background is just overwhelming. Mining, energy, custody, security, ETFs. I have no freaking clue where to start, Josh. I don't know, man. Like just I mean, she basically single-handedly started the Bitcoin ETF in Canada, as far as I know. So, <laughs> I mean, we uh, it's like the Wayne's world where we should be bowing to uh, our superior here. Thank you for kicking this off and teaching Gensler, you know, paving the way for him. Yep. <laughs> so, yes, I, I have been around the block. Ha-ha. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was the team of 3IQ that actually brought the uh, – the 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 first Bitcoin fund to fruition in Canada and and humility too wow <laughs> yeah. that did pave the way for the entire ETF industry here and and I think that's a pretty cool story from the perspective of 3IQ's approach was we're gonna get the Ontario Securities Commission to say no and then we're gonna take them to court. And then we're mm. going to fight it in court. And it was a three-year process, but they won. And what did they win? <clears throat> they won a 26-page ruling that basically said it is in the public interest to have a Bitcoin fund in Canada that retail can invest in. So that was pretty amazing. So now any any you know fund coming forward uh, wanting to put digital assets in, uh, they can apply for a prospectus using this 26-page ruling. So I think it was such an exciting 
thing to happen. And, you know, we leapfrogged at that point, the U.S. The U.S. tends to be quite quite a leader in innovation typically. But uh, you guys are falling short here, sirs. On the yeah, we are. Front. You hear that, Gensler? <laughs> yeah. Teaching a class at MIT and looking like a total clown at this point running the SEC. The other thing, uh, before we go too deep, 3IQ, first firefighter to join us on the show, Josh. (laughs) Unbelievable, man. We haven't had a firefighter on the show yet, but Meg's welcome. I'm going to tell you, you. this guy we work with, Frank, is never (laughs) going to forgive us. This guy has been wanting on the show for months now. I mean, almost every time I see him, Josh, he he wants on the show. He's knocking on the door. And here comes Mag swooping in from Canada, (laughs) taking the first firefighter spot on the show. Swooping down and taking it right out of his hands. To, to be clear, I'm a volunteer firefighter, but did you know 85% of Canada's firefighters are volunteer? So boom! And and the statistic, I just texted you guys today that 71% of structural fires are put out by volunteer firefighters here. So there we go. Very cool. Let's take way. a moment to thank each other. For, <laughs> let's take a moment to thank each other for our service. Meg, thank you, thank you for thank your you, service. Meg. Josh, thank you for your service. You're welcome. Thank you for your service. And then I'll go ahead and thank myself for my service. <laughs> I think, I, I know Frank's listening to this. So Frank, um, when you do get your BCB tattoo, uh, you're welcome on the show immediately afterwards. We just have to see it. Yep. Mags, I actually want to rewind your uh, introduction to Bitcoin because sure. you, you have, like all joking aside, the amount of involvement you've had in different spheres, the expertise you possess uh, possess across so many different uh, disciplines in Bitcoin is kind of hard to wrap our head around. How did, how did you get into Bitcoin? What, what did you have in the hopper? What was your educational background before uh, finding Bitcoin? Walk us through kind of your history here. Sure. Happy to. So um, I got into Bitcoin because of a very simple thing called number go up. Oh, I thought you were going to say Silk Road. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Chicago Fire is not lying, people. You're on Silk Road there? (laughs) (laughs) No, so I saw the price of Bitcoin going up in 2017. I was like, huh, I I put some money in that because it's going up, right? And that was my first foray. But then as soon as you put money in, you're kind of vested and you're like, what is this? And you start to go down that rabbit hole and it's a big rabbit hole. It's very deep. And soon you're, you're, you're looking at like variety of implications. It's not just, you know, Bitcoin, the asset, it's the technology behind it. It's what Bitcoin is. It's the supply. And then you start looking at the real financial system and, and how the, you know, we have lived in this dollar based world and it's just, you just keep adding to it. And then as you're saying, there's there's different verticals, right? So there's Bitcoin, like if you look at it as kind of the institutionalized Bitcoin, so that's everything like funds and publicly listed companies that are engaged in the Bitcoin space. And then we have like the Lightning Network and the payment rails. We have, you know, the whole section on custody and how do you become self-sovereign um, and, and obviously the miners, right? And so there's so many little pieces to it that you, you know, maybe in 2017, you could kind of stay apprised of everything that was happening, you know, a few ICOs, whatever, launching here, a few coins, but it's pretty much impossible to now be like, oh, I'm, you know, like NFT, DeFi and Bitcoin expert. You can't be because 
Bitcoin alone, all the technological change happening on lightning and mining, you know, just as an industry on funds, there's just too much to, to, you know, keep apprised of. So you kind of pick your lane and, and you pick the one that excites you the most. Yeah, we couldn't agree more with that. And I think as you kind of enumerated there, even within Bitcoin, the subcontext of that, the mining energy, you know, lightning itself is entirely blowing up to such an extent that it's hard to keep track of just that. Like you almost have to be a sub lane inside of Bitcoin to even really truly (laughs) wrap your head around anything that's going on in this stuff. Yeah, I mean, especially when you have a day job that's not Bitcoin focused. Like we were actually talking to, we had Joe Carlosare on the other week and he's a lawyer by trade. Similar income stream to where we're at as firemen. Oh, yeah. And yep. uh, <laughs> no, so we were just saying, we were just say, saying off air, like the three of us feel redlined. I mean, with family mm-hmm. obligations, full-time job, it's like all I can, and I love doing it. I mean, it's a marvelous hobby, this podcast, all the research that goes into it. But just to even feel like I'm staying yeah. above water, I'm, I feel redlined, which it, it's remarkable when you, when you, spectate these other thought leaders that just have their hands on everything. The three of us were talking about Lynn Alden before we got on here, like how she's able to have this depth of understanding on macro and markets and all this stuff and understand Bitcoin better than almost anyone I know seems almost physically impossible. Would put you in that category, too, of just, you know, has an understanding across the entire space, but it requires a ton of time and energy to keep up with it. But that's what's so exciting about the rabbit hole. It does. And that's actually one of the reasons why I left the public service. Um, I worked in, I worked for government <gasps> for a decade. <laughs> I know everyone's like, gasp. Um, we have, but, Dan, uh, Dan and it, I work for the government too. That's true, actually. <laughs> that, is, that is true. <laughs> but wait, but I helped put in cap and trade. So, ooh, another. Yeah, lost <laughs> what? What? Yeah. No, uh, so, don't worry, um, I... I'm Ron Swanson. I do dislike it, even though I work for it. <laughs> it was one of those things where it's like um, I was staying up to like 2 a.m. reading and learning and, and it wasn't sustainable. And at the same time, like working in public policy, like policy is pretty slow, especially look at the pace of innovation and change that happens in our industry alone. Um, policymakers are having a hard time catching up. And so seeing how fast the space moved versus how slow government was moving, I thought, A, maybe I could help more from the outside. And B, it's just like, it's, that's where my passion sort of like took me. It's like, this is what I want to do full time. And I can't sustain both. So I got to, you know, leave one behind. So I left the golden handcuffs for the orange handcuffs now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. What about, what about your background pre-Bitcoin Yeah. equipped you to find a niche in this space? So I spent a decade um, working for government. A large part of that was really this transition to a low carbon knowledge based economy. So how do we transition our economy? And a big part of that was moving to a low carbon world. And such a big part of that is the energy system. You know, uh, fossil fuels, uh, the burning of fossil fuels is, is one of the biggest reasons why Um, You know, people believe that climate change is happening. And so it's so heavily integrated. So I work with a lot of heavy industry, you know, steel, cement, um, uh, traditional miners uh, in Canada, helping them try to figure out, you know, how can we become more energy efficient? How can we transition to 
um, you know, whether it's lower carbon fuels like natural gas or renewable fuels like biomass. And so it's working with those stakeholders, making sure they remain competitive and stay in Canada. Um, and, you know, as they make business decisions on whether they want to stay, uh, you know, maybe maybe they have to refurb a giant piece of equipment like a steel plant has to do, um, you know, a Coke oven is aging. They're usually like 30 years or so. Do they want to build another Coke oven after this one's done? Or do they want to go to a plant in Brazil because maybe there's better kind of economic conditions. So it's making sure that, you know, the policies that were being put in place in Canada wouldn't put businesses out of business or would um, force them to make those kind of decisions to put, you know, productivity improvements somewhere else, new equipment somewhere else. So so that's kind of where I came from. I also did uh, do a stint uh, working for the Ministry of Energy. So, so I worked there and I think that kind of, you know, this transition to a low carbon economy and, you know, how do we reinvest in our economy to make sure that they can put in those kind of um, equipment that, you know, leads to reductions, uh, put me in kind of like, in retrospect, I should have gone into mining a lot earlier, because I had this background of working with heavy industry, which is what I would say traditional miners, oh, sorry, Bitcoin miners are, and, um, you know, the energy system. And, and we'll talk a little bit of that whole integration, a little, uh, I'm sure, uh, in a yeah, few minutes. We will. But, um, but I think it was kind of like this perfect fit of, you know, how do we stay competitive as Canada? Whether that's, you know, legacy industries like the traditional industries where, you know, I have a traditional footprint that's an industrial site or the new kind of industries that are being built around this knowledge based economy. And as you know, our economy shifts digital and shifts to digital services. So so I think part of that, you know, and looking at different types of innovations, it kind of set me up to pursue this rabbit hole. I think this parlays really well into another question that we wanted to ask you, which is, how concerned are you about carbon emissions after having been in, <laughs> I know this is a very politically charged question, so we're not, you know, speculating if, is this an actual thing or not? What really, what we're asking is societal concern over this global warming thing, appropriate, too high, too low from your view and the, and the variable solutions that are being positioned. Yeah. So I think people have gotten apathetic because, you know, uh, scientists and politicians are like, you know, climate change is happening and it's going to be really bad. And I do think that is the case. It's just when you keep hearing about it, a bit like the fire alarms on going off a lot <laughs> all the time, you kind of stop yeah. listening to it. It becomes the background mm -hmm. noise. And I think nobody evacuates. Nobody evacuates. Seriously. I mean, we have multifamilies <laughs> in our town where the fire alarm goes off so often you see like one yeah. person standing outside and we're uh. like, if this thing's ever rolling. <laughs> It's yeah. going to get really ugly. Seriously. Yeah. So so what happens is people aren't taking it as seriously, but then also government policy. So politicians want to get reelected. So it comes mm. all comes down to incentives. Right. Um, exactly. And, and that could be a politically charged topic. I remember when I was working for the Ministry of Energy, it, you know, um, the election the first time was almost lost because people were quite upset about electricity prices going up. And I would say the second time the liberals lost. And a big factor of that was people perceived the government moving green and phasing out coal as something that really raised the prices of electricity, um, whether it was right or not. Um, uh, it, it's much, obviously it's much more complex than that. It's just awful. the energy grid had been underinvested for, for decades and it all comes to a head and you suddenly need to make these massive investments. So it's not just, just the greening of the grid. It's just like the whole refurbishment of the grid so that you can actually turn your lights on and keep them on. Um, but, um, 
ultimately, you know, where's this money coming from? And then maybe it's the public sector, sorry, private sector. But if it's a private sector, then they need that incentive. So I think that's why Bitcoin's pretty amazing is that it has economic incentives that are kind of aligned um, with with some of these public policy goals. Um, but the economic incentives are there to like to actually do it. So what I mean is, um, you know, miners look towards the cheapest energy sources. Uh, they look to optimize uh, or even, you know, like find waste. So what I mean, for example, on the waste front is, you know, you look at trash, whether it's municipal solid waste or tires, they're thrown out and people get like landfills get paid to take this trash in. But if you are an industrial, like a heavy industry user, and this could be also cement, this could be steel to a lower amount because of the impurities, but um but then also miners, That's a, it's an energy feedstock that is either free or you get paid for it. So you're going to look to optimize that resource, which is traditionally seen as waste. You're going to be like, hmm, maybe I could get paid to take this in and have this energy source that I then combust to mine. And look at that. Suddenly we have this economic incentive system to subsidize waste management infrastructure uh, like, um, I'm, I'm actually, um, so I'm advising a really cool company called PRTI and that's ex essentially what we're doing. You know, America throws out 300 million tires a year and they just sit in landfills and there's a lot of other toxins associated with that. And some of these are just burning like out in the open. Um, and so we're taking this resource and we're repurposing it into waste, uh, sorry, into, uh, usable byproducts like synthetic gas, kind of like a natural gas synthetic mm -hmm. oil slash diesel, um, carbon that could be used for other processes. And um, obviously we're mining Bitcoin. So so I think it's a, it's, it's a really cool thing that Bitcoin enables is this, um, you know, in, this new type of infrastructure spending. And it's, and as I was saying too, it's, if you look at, you know, our electricity grid and our infrastructure, we're kind of shifting towards this more modern grid, low carbon grid, and um, and that does require funding, right? But what we're seeing, especially in Texas, is as more renewable plants are coming online, um, miners are kind of slotting in and places where there's constraints, for example, transmission distribution constraints, like there's too much um, energy being produced, uh, maybe the wind farms running at 100% or the solar farms, you know, sun is shining, uh, and the grid can't take all that power at the time, miners can take that energy and can and in a way they subsidize that uh, facility, because when you provide a predictable revenue stream, like consistent, miners are taking this energy 24 seven, 365, right. right, they're continuously buying, they could even bootstrap these things from I mean, exactly, they there could be a wind farm that's need. I mean, to bootstrap a wind farm somewhere, to bootstrap a solar panel farm or whatever they call them, that would be able to bootstrap yep. that situation into actually being and then be able to supply the grid afterwards. And they're bootstrapping nuclear plants too, Oklo in the U.S. Yeah. So it's I'm a huge fan of renewable. nuclear. Yeah. Huge fan. Until <laughs> <laughs> they blow up. Elon. Elon. <laughs> they're Elon awesome Musk. until they're not was asked this question. There was a recent TED talk with he was interviewed about his position on like the climate hysteria, if you want to call it that. But yeah. he said, um, and I, I thought this is a really interesting and, and a measured answer by him because you'd expect him. He's incentivized to perpetuate mm -hmm. this kind of hysteria because his company is riding the coattails of it, you know, and he basically said to paraphrase him, 
his response implied that he he thinks he thinks this is overblown. He reeled back mm. and he said, as long as we keep making the progress we're making, we have some, you know, reasonable goals in the long term. We have nothing to worry about. There's not going to be some 20 year out catastrophe that's going to end the world like so many hysterics tend to think. And when I say hysterics, I'm saying people that say the world's going to end in 20 years if we don't end all mm. fossil fuel consumption in the next five years or something. I just thought that was a very interesting perspective from a guy who's incentivized to say the complete opposite. The other thing I was going to say, well, first of all, Mags, it's super interesting to hear you talk about this because in the Bitcoin space, you see a ton of Bitcoiners move towards energy. (laughs) You don't see that many people with an energy background move towards Bitcoin. So Josh and I can sit here and be three article experts and sling... (laughs) Uh, as though we know what's going on, but we just there's just no way we can replicate the background you have. One of the points you made that I think is incredibly important is this intentions versus incentives kind of distinction. And that's something we talk about on this show. You can have the purest of intentions, but if the incentives are not properly aligned, nothing's going to get done. I think another thing that comes to mind with this whole energy discussion is just market efficiency, right? So as we try to solve this insanely complex distributed global energy issue, the chances that a few centralized decision makers are going to be able to hatch a plan that fixes this full problem is insanely unlikely, which is why we need to hopefully get our hands around and start bolstering technologies that enable this to happen organically through an open market. And that's what I think we would all agree is potentially so miraculous about Bitcoin. So so what I think is pretty incredible is, again, so I come from this world where I worked in government with private industry and you know it was either ratepayers, taxpayers, or private industry that made projects work. But I think you know the most... So Bitcoin is built on this set of these elegant economic incentives right, where you're optimized to either stop wasting resources, whether that's heat that you can sell off or energy that's wasted, typically like flare gas or, or, or even garbage, right? Um, or you're, you know, you're optimizing those resources. So in a grid, making sure, uh, you know, like the Texas grid, you set kind of stabilizing it uh, based on, you know, demand supply, or just like, optimizing the sense of lowering carbon emissions, because when it comes down to it, carbon is a cost center. If you're burning coal (laughs) to mine Bitcoin miners, at some point it's going to catch up to you because carbon is going to have a price eventually, or maybe it already does in some places like in Alberta. So that's going to add a cost to that, right? And so, so what I think is really cool is that, yeah, we have for the first time a new way to fund or subsidize this infrastructure that we need. And that could be energy infrastructure, but it's kind of other infrastructure. But I think like if we kind of step back, what I think is truly, truly amazing, and, and I call it kind of like Darwin's finches, is that Bitcoin is integrating into so many different aspects of our society uh, and people haven't fully gained an appreciation or an awareness of just how much it's infiltrated. Just looking at it kind of from a high level, like we have infiltrated financial services, right? We're increasing access to so many more people in the globe that have been either unbanked or underbanked historically. But also like in, 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 in the US too, there's a huge subset of the population that's unbanked and underbanked. But then we're also creating these new, you know, like payment rails that you can 
uh, like look at what Strike's doing, right? Uh, and you're not even like you're, you're seeing a dollar on one side and like a Canadian dollar, let's say on the other side, you don't even understand. Like most yeah. people wouldn't even. And you're not seeing grasp. any banks in the middle. Yes, exactly. So you know that's financial services, right? Energy system, they're totally integrating. Whether that's um, looking at the traditional oil and gas sector, where um, you know typically minor, sorry, uh, oil and gas when they uh, find an oil field, there's usually natural gas also found with it. And they usually burn that off. Um, and that's just energy that's wasted, but miners are coming in and tapping into that and kind of providing a more efficient burning process. And CH4 as a greenhouse gas is 20 times, 25 times more potent than CO2. So the actual act of burning it and then more effectively means that you're lowering the emissions. So that's like traditional oil and gas, you know, that's one subset of, of industry they've infiltrated. But renewables now, like miners are co-locating uh, with a with uh, either solar or um, wind sites and, you know, providing that predictable revenue stream um, and maybe helping, you know, whether it's scale up, like a big scale up a bigger site or just fitting into the seams of the existing energy system, and but but they're also fitting into like sectors that you might not have thought of. So what I mean is like let's look at agriculture uh, from two different angles. Um, so in the UK and in Mexico, you have hog farms or um, cow farms, and these animals create a lot of poop, <laughs> so they create a lot of waste, and that waste is biomass. And if put into an anaerobic digester, it creates biogas. And that biogas is carbon neutral. And if you burn it, and this is actually happening in, in both the UK and. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm going to have to stop you for one second and yeah. just say that yeah. she is literally talking about hogs mining Bitcoin. This is. Uh, <laughs> Josh and I have been sitting here just like, we can't. I'm sorry. This is a match I, made in heaven. How have we not? So we need to get connected what? with the hog. If there's any hog farmers out there listening, <laughs> blue collar Bitcoin podcast at Gmail, hit us up. We want to. Yeah. Partner. So, real quick, I just want to break this down for people. It So, the slop goes into the trough. The hog consumes <laughs> The hog consumes it, digests it, creates methane. That methane is then burned to create Bitcoin. We have a full integrated ecosystem um, of creating Bitcoin with hogs. And we actually, Josh and I, we're going to turn this off now. We're done here. Josh and I have had this idea of on our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io, having a live hog cam where we uh, monitor a group of hogs. How awesome would it be if these hogs were mining Bitcoin, Josh? (laughs) With with farts. Yeah. We got our work cut out for us. It's not the farts, which are, I think, harder to capture. It's their poop, which then put in an anaerobic digester create goes through that process creates the the biogas but yes you're you're on the I right love track the future <laughs> but that so that's one aspect of agriculture but then also what's happening uh around the world especially in northern climates is you know we have a lot of greenhouses here in canada um and in you know nordic countries uh, alaska has pretty bad food security in terms of access to fresh fruits and veggies so you have these miners that are setting up maybe near you know, res- energy-rich resource countries like Canada or Alaska, which has gas. And you know, if your if your miners expend a lot of heat, you can recycle that heat and put it into greenhouses to heat the actual greenhouse. And there's been pilots done in some of the Nordic countries. I know some First Nations are looking into it here in in Canada. It's it's a long-term process to kind of you know to build that out, but it's another way to kind of like 
bolster food security is to recycle that heat, right? Actually, another idea, like from food food manufacturing. So there's a really cool company called Mint Green in Canada. They're out on the west coast where I am, and what they do is they partner with heat loads. Like, uh, so for example, district heating, you need heat to be provided to you to heat buildings. Um, they have a really cool whiskey. Uh, manufacturing or whiskey distillery that they've partnered with that makes whiskey. So that take the heat from the miners and it helps both heat kind of the whiskey barrel room, but also it heats the mash. So you have this like whiskey that's produced through Bitcoin miner heat to go with your hog or your (laughs) (laughs) and it's pretty freaking cool. Um, how, you know, here's another area where, where Bitcoin has kind of infiltrated and integrated, uh, in a much more optimized system. And, uh, and then, you know, going back to the waste management site, so whether it's tires or municipal waste that can be um, thermally deconstructed, uh, or, and I haven't seen this one yet, but I know it's happening in the steel, uh, with a steel plant. If you have a landfill, uh, typically there's methane that's uh, it released, right, from all the organics. I have seen it. So, so some countries have put in landfill gas capture requirements because it's, it's, you know, CH4 is highly potent GHG, but some places like they capture this methane and then you can burn it. And I've seen, there's, um, I think, I believe it's, uh, ArcelorMittal DeFasco in, in Ontario that actually is right next door to a methane plant. So they're actually piping in that methane to their plant. So there's no reason you can't just stick on some miners and a generator. So I think that's why, you know, it's something that's underappreciated. We have this explosion of niches, just like Darwin's finches, you know, all these finches have different beaks and they fit in different parts of the ecosystem. You have miners fitting into different parts of our economy and, you know, optimizing resources and, and, and driving kind of the incentives towards things that, you know, create a better kind of environmental outcome, whether that's reduced GHGs, reduced landfill waste. So I think that's why it's pretty incredible to see something that's not <clears throat> mandated by policy, typically by government, right? Like the stick. It's it's like the carrot. It's the economic incentive. It's crazy to think about, and it takes a little while to digest this, but with Bitcoin, you now have a location agnostic energy buyer of last resort that cr- tends to crave renewables and sustainable energy. And this isn't just, like I was looking at some charts by the mining council that were sort of surveying amount of sustainable renewable energy. And I think on average, the Bitcoin Bitcoin mining is somewhere in the 60%. Say, so for example, the United States is like 33%. So it is percentage wise, the most renewable, sustainable, hungry energy consumer in the world, completely organically. It's crazy to think about. And it can happen anywhere close to a population center, thousands of miles away from a population center, it can, it can, it, energy sources can draw it like a magnet regardless of other energy needs surrounding it. It is mind blowing when you think about this. I, I think I remember Nick Carter drawing the analogy of like Bitcoin is water flowing to the low ground yeah. across the yeah. global energy grid. And I, I think that's a very powerful analogy for the purpose that it serves. I, I think it's an awesome analogy. And actually, if you think about it, too, it's a very vis, uh, low viscosity water because um, like, like think about maple syrup versus just like water. 
it's what, what I mean is if you look at all, you know, heavy industry, typically these, um, they have kind of, they're, they have long investment cycles. If you look at a steel plant, right, they build in, they put in a Coke oven, it's, you know, a couple, maybe it's like 30 million, $40 million in infrastructure spending. And that thing will last you for 30, 40 years. So you're kind of set at that site because you ain't mm. going to move a Coke oven, right? Yep. Whereas miners, you know, <laughs> we've seen it when the China ban came in. Uh, within a year, we basically moved the entire industry uh, to, you know, a lot of it came to the US and, and crazy early Texas. But it, it, it's pretty wild. Like there's no other industry that has just basically picked up all the equipment and moved because the most expensive piece of infrastructure is the actual miner. I have one behind me. Like I can lift it, <laughs> you know, uh, in China, typically actually miners, used, Chinese miners used to move them four times a year because during the wet season versus dry season, they would move to different parts of, um, you know, where the energy was right. Cheapest. The interesting thing about this too, I wanted to add was none of this could have been mandated top down. There's no government yeah. bureaucrat or official who could have been like, you know what? Um, let's Amen. burn a bunch of hog shit and turn that into Bitcoin <laughs> or let's, let's capture all the methane from a landfill and turn this into Bitcoin. Like these, these are the kinds of things, like you said, Mags, like the carrot or the stick, the carrot is always more, it's the incentive. It's yeah. never the force. The force is never going to accomplish what it thinks it will. The carrot's always going to accomplish things you can't even think of. And yeah. that is that is the exact proposition of why capitalism will always subvert and, and win in the end here, because socialism is always going to have a blind spot, which is that there's only a single or a small group of people running the show who simply don't have the brain power, not because they're stupid, but because they just aren't infiltrated deep root, deep rooted into all these aspects of an industry where they can see these things proliferate from the ground up. Hey, let's get a bunch of sealed boilers and break tires down into their exactly <laughs> units and burn the gas, the off gas to mine Bitcoin. Not happening without the open market. And then make some sick golf videos, just you know, pumping up <laughs> yeah. on, up and down the course. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that. But here's the thing too: like, just regular people can mine at home and still participate in in you know the Bitcoin mining industry. And I think. Um, and it, it there's a there's a little bit of an economic incentive there, depending on you know what your price of electricity is versus what your price of gas. But I have seen people here they've reduced their natural gas bill, um, you know they posted online, and uh, and and actually that has a GHG impact too because most most homes are heated by either gas or propane. It's it's a carbon fuel, right? And especially in Canada. And then if you consider, for example, I, if I'm mining in British Columbia, Canada, the grid is 98% renewable. So I'm actually fuel switching away from a fossil fuel. And, and, you know, it, 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 it's, it's from an environmental perspective, it's a win. I'm heating, you know, my home. And it, it's pretty amazing how elaborate some of these Bitcoiners have created their, um, you know, the, how they're pumping heat, whether it's, they're using an immersion system, or whether they're using just like, at, you know, pumping it throughout their house. Uh, I think there's there's a huge level of creativity. And I think, you know, <laughs> I think people just kind of miss the chance to build things, right, at, with their own hands. And this kind of lets you, you know, do something different than just, you know, turn on Netflix. <laughs> so far in this conversation, the three of us have been, I would say, delightfully politically correct. <laughs> I want to trans transition because I think we're missing a really key part of this. 
Like okay. I think when a, when a lot of Bitcoiners start talking energy, <laughs> we act as though we're backed up against the ropes, right? Mm. Like we're defending ourselves for why it consumes energy, right? When in fact we should be on offense, beating the living shit out of energy critics because this thing is worth it. Okay, I think there's two it's points I it. want to establish before 100%. we get off of energy. The bit Bitcoin is a worthy consumer of energy. So on that front, I want to explore why proof of work is so important, what Bitcoin's accomplished high level, why this should be a consumer of energy. And then on top of that, the proof of stake dilemma, right? So the, mm -hmm. the, the alternatives to proof of work that are not a viable solution to globally distributed, decentralized, censorship resistant, bearer money. Right. So let, let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin as a worthy consumer of energy. Why do you view proof of work as so important, Mags? I mean, I, again, and, and this is probably from I'm coming at it from an opposite angle, but I actually do see it playing an important role in this transition to a low carbon economy. Um, so so that alone in and of itself, we are helping renewables integrate within the grid. Right. We're providing a subsidy to that. We're seeing, um, if, if, so that's one angle. You look at the job and economic development opportunities. The fact that it's actually supporting kind of existing industries, whether that's agriculture, right, and food security, um, whether that's providing energy security. Look, look at what hap what's happening in Europe, right? They phased out mm. nuclear, uh, and you know they're reliant on Russian gas. And they're in a bit of a pickle right now. Yeah, they are. They are. They are. And what they what they need to do is they need to build out massive amounts of infrastructure, which are quite expensive. So in this world, you know, we're we're living in this world of rising energy prices, inflation, geopolitical instability, and here we have you know like this distributed, dispatchable energy that can be subsidized, you know, by miners, whether that's waste kind of resources, whether that's renewables, you know, it's helping kind of build this new infrastructure, uh, especially, you know, as the world is kind of coming apart and, and, you know, we used to be a lot more globally connected and kind of the pendulum swimming, swinging back and countries have to rely on their own energy sources. So I think that's, that's, that's an important part to kind of consider, not to mention the fact of like, like, look at jobs, every country wants to be um, competitive worldwide, right? And I think why my why Bitcoin is so cool is like it's got physical footprints. You know, mining is obviously one, but it's not just it goes beyond mining. You look at you know physical storage like hardware devices. That's new age manufacturing, right? <laughs> In a world where we touch the digital and the physical, and so so there's you know manufacturing jobs. The people that are building any of these plants, you know, you, blue collar workers. Right. You get plumbers, you've got electricians. So you're uh, supporting those. We've got, you know, the energy system is being integrated on both ends. Right. Traditional companies are like oil and gas and even renewable sites are looking to integrate miners into their current operation and vice versa. And miners are looking to acquire uh, their own energy sites. So, you know, those are there's jobs associated with that. And then there's a whole host of other things like exchanges and, you know, lawyers, <laughs> everything. So like from the economic development piece alone, as a country, you know, as the world moves to a digital space 
and and um, and digital services, you want to ensure that you remain competitive and that you're attracting top talent to your country versus like the brain drain, which Canada's had for for so many years. You want to make sure your companies are creating new patents, right? That they continue to innovate. So you want to make sure that as a country, you're attracting this talent. Um, so that's another important thing. And and I and I know kind of like maybe I digressed a little bit to 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 your question, but hundred percent there's value and that value comes I, I love reading Alex Gladstein's work and he's got a new book check your financial privilege I believe is what it's called there's two mm-hmm. you know two billion people that are unbanked and underbanked there's people that live in totalitarian regimes you know they have financial access cut off and Bitcoin is you know this non-biased system that anyone can participate in so <laughs> you know if you're against Bitcoin you kind of have to check your financial privilege right? Do you actually have access to like banking all the time? Because if, if you're against Bitcoin, you Not probably- if you're a Canadian trucker. Yeah, exactly. Or someone who donated, which by the right. way, like at the time it was perfectly legal to donate right. to, you know, the Canadian truckers. And then retroactively people had access to their banking cut off because they donated to something that was at the time perfectly legal to donate to. And that's a very scary thing. And people in Canada were not expecting, I think, something that, you know, totalitarian almost (laughs) to come down the pipe. One of the things that comes to mind for me when I think about is Bitcoin mining or energy consumption worth it? It's, it's, It's almost hearkening back to something that Michael Saylor likes to say, which I resonate with strongly, which is that Bitcoin's a battery. And Mm. even if you even if you agree with some of the analytics out there that say, I mean, it's somewhere between 0.1 and 1% of the energy in the world is consumed by Bitcoin. There's 17% from what I've been reading of the energy in the world is completely wasted because this isn't something that can just be saved unless you have a giant bank of batteries, which Mm nobody really does have. So 17% of this energy is wasted. Theoretically, I mean, if even if the highest point of these numbers is, say it's 1% consumption, this thing could grow by a factor of 17 and yeah. still wouldn't waste any energy. What it would do <laughs> is then basically turn it into a digital battery, which you can, because all money is, is a way to store value and energy. So it's in effectively turning that 17% of wasted energy into digital value that can then okay. be dispersed through the world. I mean, that's a beautiful idea. And I think he, I think he's on point with it. Yeah. I think another fundamental question to ask is like, can what, Bitcoin provides be accomplished by a less energy intensive protocol. And certainly not an expert here, but at this point with the amount of research I've done, I think the the overwhelming answer is no. I think of a just pulled up this Nick Carter tweet that we retweeted this week. He said the best bet would be devising a system that is more secure, offers stronger assurances, settles faster, is more privacy preserving and is more censorship resistant all without using proof of work. Such a system would be miraculous. I'm waiting with bated <laughs> breath. And yeah. I, I just, I, I can't I can't agree more because I think what makes Bitcoin valuable, right? What, what yeah. protects immutable monetary policy is radical decentralization. And I do yeah. think that a consensus mechanism tied to real world energy and also enabling a small amount of processing, right? Allowing a couple firemen to run a node. Though the, those are yeah. ingredients that allow for radical decent, uh, decentralization, 
that then allows for Bitcoin to accomplish what it does. And when you think about to bring back proof of stake in, you add the tremendous complexity of that proof of stake demands also with the centralizing forces that underlie proof of stake. Like the more you have, the more you have stake, mm -hmm. the more you control. Mm -hmm. the, the summative statement of what I'm trying to articulate is I just, there is not a viable solution. And as Nick Carter said, like if it appears, I'll give it, I will absolutely dive into it and give it a look, <laughs> yeah. but it does not look mathematically and cryptographically viable at this point in time. We have something that's working and that, that, is a sizable but not massive consumer of energy on a global scale and also incentivizes renewables and sustainables. Like mm -hmm. the way I view this whole issue is it's not a problem, but we have to spend exorbitant amounts of time explaining why it's not a problem. And that is an important cause because the narrative matters, right? right. It could be easier. It could be easy for us to sit behind our microphones and be like, it's not a problem. Trust me. But that's not how the world works. You have to convince people of things to get things done and for networks to grow. Proof of work is the only system for blockchains that is proven reliable, dependent on, it's always dependent on human func uh, human incentives to function properly, harnesses human greed for good. It's worked flawlessly for 13 years. And it, and, you know, in the last week we saw Solana. Did you guys notice, did you guys see what went on yeah. with them? Yeah. They had a consensus failure with their nodes. The entire thing had to be rebooted and restrapped from what a complete and total fucking shit show. If that happened in Bitcoin, <laughs> it would, I mean, the value would be just destroyed. The point, it, the point that I'm getting at is that it's, it's a conservative consensus mechanism that works and it's proven to work and point proof of stake is it, it's nascent at best. Ethereum has been talking about moving to it for six years and it still hasn't happened. Like if this was something that was so easy to do, and so foolproof and so yeah such a locked up thing they would have done it long ago it's it's a total fucking clown show i would guess all three of us would agree none of us are in a point to say that proof of stake protocols have zero utility i think that's a short-sighted dogmatic binary binary viewpoint for them to usurp the use case that bitcoin the, the gap that bitcoin is filling is in my view at this point preposterous it's absurd right that's the thing. It's not that we're saying there's never a time and place like this Lynn Alden article that I referenced on energy earlier. She spent some time talking about how for like a typical like security, like basically stock distribution is similar to a proof of stake protocol. Maybe that works in, in the private sector, right? With, with security offerings. But to make, to transpose that onto a, a radically decentralized digital commodity money, is what doesn't make sense in my view. Mags, we just blabbered for a while. What are your no, what are your takeaways, thoughts, critiques of some of what we just explored? I think you guys covered some a few important points that needed to be covered. So thank you for that. Uh, I think what I'd add to is um, just the way that the Bitcoin system works, right? So you have the miners and then you have the nodes. And if you in your proof of stake system, right? If you know you're participating in the mm. network with the stake, you get to vote um, and and set governments governance make governance decisions but in bitcoin it's different right the miners they're securing the network if you are a country that suddenly wants to change you know go back reverse a transaction or a couple transactions you need to spend a lot of money to be a first build out the infrastructure so you have enough hash power to and now we're talking about billions of dollars like billions, uh, maybe even trillions now at this point in terms of trying to get that. And it's not like something that like, 
oh, I'm suddenly going to buy 3 million machines mm. uh, and, yeah. and, and set them up because the chips. Somebody's <laughs> got to make them. There's a Proof shortage of, work. of chips. 100%. Back at the yeah. And so uh, plus you need, you know, abundant energy supply. So you need to be a country that's in that kind of position. So in terms of bad actor coming in at this point in time where we are in 2020, in terms of, you know, total hash rate, we're approaching three, three, 300 uh, exahash. And so, you know, it's it's just not going to happen. You're not going to reverse a transaction very easily. So, you know, as the hash rate grows, the network security grows. And um, secondly, you know, the miners aren't the ones that are making de- it's mm. the nodes. Yeah. It's people running nodes. And that's where the cons- consensus is made. And that can be you, me, uh, anybody. I mean, it could also be, you know, like a bank. <laughs> And, and so it's a very, it's, it's kind of separated in terms of how the system's set up. And, and that's why, you know, we, we had the, uh, the block size wars, you know, the miners lost <laughs> that war, the, the nodes, you know, the individual people did not want, uh, you know, uh, they wanted a certain outcome that was much more decentralized and that, and that's what won. So I think that's kind of the, a bit of the magic there. Um, Picture the block size wars with a proof of stake mechanism, right? All the, the vast majority, 80% of hash rate, all the major exchanges, <laughs> yeah. portions of the dev team, the list yeah. could go on, all the power resting behind the big players in a proof of stake system. The blocks would have, it would have done what Ethereum does high. every, every couple of months. They just decide to fork, uh, do a hard fork and force consensus onto everybody and roll it into the next one, you know? How many dead blockchains is is Ethereum left? How many graveyards for Ethereum are there? Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're also dealing with like in proof of work, just the the unbelievable degree of simplicity where you can just pick up trust the longest chain, not possible on proof Mm -hmm. of stake. This could be a whole episode in and of itself, (laughs) but it does go. It does. The reason we're covering this in the energy realm is that it's worth it. We're not backed against the ropes. We're throwing the punches tonight. Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, the energy footprint is is the proof of work. The the machines are the proof of work. It's yeah. Let's do a quick spin move into Quadriga. This is something oh. that I feel like a Dan and <laughs> yeah. I watched it. <laughs> we watched the documentary last night, so uh we're feeling pretty confident that we uh we have this by the horns. We definitely were not at work when we watched the documentary either. <laughs> you guys don't have your recliners and you kick on the documentary as you wait for the next call <laughs> yeah wait so you said on twitter that uh we don't recline there's no recliners at the firehouse no. where you're at no i think there maybe we'll like- come up and donate some one day <laughs> we like, have we'll a couple some broken, big ribbon cutting <laughs> we have ceremony some broken recliners that we can donate <laughs> i think it's a little different though to be fair for volunteer departments we don't have career guys that are hanging out there you know 24 24- seven right we we live at home where we have our own recliners and when the call pager goes off you drive down to the hall right yeah i got you (laughs) mags we got a guy at our department that sleeps in the recliner whoa so 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 we got got full bunk room right uh, where we're supposed to go we got one guy that just doesn't sleeps in the recliner (laughs) rumor has it that they uh they clean that thing out we have a carpet cleaner that's also turns into an upholstery furniture cleaner what I'm told is that the water that came out of that recliner was damn near black. You know what, though? I have to give him props. Like the reason he does it is because he is the most horrendous snorer I've ever heard in my life. Uh, it, it is okay. like a 10 out of 10 and you can't sleep anywhere near this guy. So he sleeps in there to save the rest of us because I work with him every day. Uh-huh. 
he saves <laughs> the rest of us our entire night if we're lucky enough to get it. So uh, I I thank them. Thank him very much. We should th- thank him God, for his recliner snort. service. Yeah, thank you for your recliner service. So let's um, dig into what Quadriga. This is an interesting, yeah. really interesting <laughs> situation. Uh, so a guy, what was his name? Gerald Cotton. Yep. He started Quadriga in 2014. He gained, I mean, he's he's killing it throughout 2017, 2018 oh, rolls around the bear market. People are withdrawing their Bitcoin and suddenly they can't get their money. And I know you've you've kind of been deep into this. So give us you got anything that the documentary didn't <laughs> cover? Because, I mean, that was it besides a bunch of cat lady text messages and, you know, a bunch of whining. that I lost all Wait, my first money. first off, we, before you go too hard, what role did you play? In the quadriga yes. oh, audience. Oh yeah, I I brought it down. It was single handedly. <laughs> yeah, Megs, yeah. Megs has all the Bitcoin. She's the one sitting on all the Bitcoin. She's the one with the keys. We should get on that. Uh, like, uh, what what was that? Was it dis- no, it was um, what was the chat group? Where were Discord, they? Discord, I think. I think it was Discord. No, or was Where? it Reddit? Telegram or, or there's Telegram. so many. Yeah, so many. Pl- yeah. So Megs okay. has the keys. <laughs> I have the key. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, even you guys if I have the keys, guess what? It doesn't matter because the Bitcoin's gone. Because even though on the website, when you went to it, Quadriga was advertising, oh, yes, we do cold storage, very secure cold storage. No, he was actually sending <laughs> he was the gambling Bitcoin and the ETH. Yeah, he it was, was a bigger, bigger Ponzi gambling. scheme than a pension plan. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it so, was. So, so let me back up. Funny, okay, dude. so. I unfortunately was am a creditor of Quadriga, which means I, I lost money. I lost Bitcoin uh, on the exchange, which totally sucks. Uh, that it's sucks. one of those things. I'm it's, sorry to hear freaking that. Freaking sucks. It's uh yeah, I know. You look at it, you're like, damn, that's more Bitcoin I had had. But it's one of those trial by fire things where if you lose money, you're like, huh, I should be really keeping things pretty secure on my own, you know, hardware wallet. Huh, there's something to that, right? Um, so I lost money and, but also about 76,000 users of Quadriga lost money. So it wasn't just me and the exchange owed $215 million, but only 46 million. Now this is Canadian funny money. <laughs> only 46 million of those assets. Not cock bucks, Canadian funny no. money. There you go. Maple syrup dollars. <laughs> Did you know if you scratch and sniff our, our money, it kind of smells like maple syrup. Wow. <laughs> you learn something on every episode here at BCP. Yep. Oh, and, and since I'm talking about maple syrup, I will say one thing. Canada does not have gold reserves. It does not have Bitcoin reserves, but it does have a strategic maple syrup reserve. So do with that what you will. Is that for real? <laughs> no, it's for real. Yeah, Google it. I'm gonna I'm going to because <laughs> as I talk about Quadriga, you can report back what you find. All right. Oh, and we had how many, how many barrels pipe. of maple syrup do they have on reserve? It's a lot. It is a lot. I don't remember the number, but it's a couple million. Well, uh, when the world collapses, Canada is going to be the place to go because they have million? some maple yeah. syrup. <laughs> More substance but. there than the current U.S. Treasury issue. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> but there was actually a big maple syrup heist where millions of dollars of maple syrup was stolen, and it was a big, big to do. They found some, but uh, anyways, okay. The, back Mountie, to the Mounties were on it. I'm guessing <laughs> they were on it. <laughs> So, okay, Quadriga was the largest digital asset exchange in Canada, and he had this, you know, Gerald Cotton, which turned out to be basically running this exchange that did every, like the worst case scenario of what can happen on an exchange happened there. 
So it's like this exhaustive case study of like these worst operational practices and criminal activities of like that you could, if you want a case study, you use this one. Um, so first of all, you know, they said we did, we do the cold storage, but actually these assets were not safeguarded in cold storage. Um, he, Cotton, he created and traded fake assets against clients. And he, he created these aliases like uh, CP3O, uh, uh, like like Star Wars characters, and he was trading against them. Um, and then, but he also sent client coins to other exchanges, and where he was trading with them, and and that, and he incurred this hundred and forty three million trading shortfall because he was a bad trader. And then he was using like this revolving door of other mm. client assets to cover the shortfall, whether it was fiat money or or you know Ethereum or or Bitcoin. And so that actually escalated the losses. And it was really his death because the, uh, the exchange was operating at a significant, you know, gap of what the assets should have been there versus what they weren't. Um, that kept growing over time. And his death kicked off that collapse because when he died, you know, these directors took over and they're trying to find all these assets. And at first, you know, when he died, there was no operational practices to like, uh, transition if, for example, you know, the CEO dies, like how do we access all his accounts? Like there was no um, best practices, like continue business continuity plan. So they weren't able to, you know, regain assets, uh, access to his wallets, but then it didn't even matter in the end because those wallets didn't have, sorry, they had a tiny amount of crypto. I think it was like at the time, $5 million worth, but we, we were missing you know, yeah. in terms of the users that came together, they were with missing 215. Um, he was embezzling exchange funds, man. He was buying homes, multiple homes. He was renting them out, cars, a boat, a plane, luxury travel. Like you could see some of the, the pics that he had. Like it was amazing. His ac activities on the exchange weren't tracked. So he was doing things behind the scenes. But like uh, if, if like another worker was doing things, you could monitor what they did on the exchange. His was not. Um, they didn't keep, I know, right. They didn't keep any financial books and records. So they failed, for example, to file corporate tax returns, which actually is screwing, um, it, it, us creditors because what's, what's happening is that there's this unresolved tax liability that's delaying the bankruptcy process because now, you know, uh, our C Canada revenue agency is a effectively a creditor and they have to figure out how much the exchange owes, which is kind of annoying because it's like us creditors that's left. There's no business. He's dead. Right. It's just victims. So there's some, it's so, so uh, like infuriating that the government's going to come in after the fact, even though he wasn't filing tax returns. Right. And be like, huh, you know, this, this business owes us money. <laughs> victims left guys i'm sure they're Anyways. first in line too right uh well no i think they're just there's no like preference i believe that they would get i think it's more frustrating because they're delayed they've so far they're delayed delaying the process the process by a year too. and a half yeah. and like you know as you see number go up over time you're like well if i'm expecting some pennies on the dollar because you're probably going to get maybe like 10 cents on the dollar or something as a creditor um tbd right right uh, how much the uh the lawyers and the the trustee take of, of that with their fees. But, um, you know, you still want money now versus money later so that you can maybe buy in, right? Um, the, oh, but the one thing that did kind of save us creditors was, so the exchange used third-party process, third-party payment processors to process those 
exchange deposits and the withdrawals, and at least one uh, transfer payment processor was commingling personal funds with the client funds. So those funds, because like CIBC was like, ha, something funny is going on here. So they flagged them and they got frozen and that went to court. And the only reason we have $30 million was because that was frozen by the court. And by the time that unraveled, we were able to gain access to it. And the fact that he embezzled into like homes meant and other things, assets that could be sold meant that we could sell off those assets. And that's how we kind of got to this 46 million plus a little bit of crypto that was left over. So explain just what role you've kind of played in this process. (laughs) Sorry. So I I, I have two hats, actually. So I was appointed by the Supreme uh, Court uh, of Nova Scotia to be a, a bankruptcy inspector. So I'm one of five inspectors that oversees the bankruptcy um, oversees the trustee. Um, it's it's a typical uh, role in a bankruptcy pro- process, but you have to be a creditor. So, you know, make sure that, you know, the fees are being charged or reasonable, that kind of thing. And and also provide advice occasionally because like, it's a pretty new topic, <laughs> like the digital assets, right? Yeah. This whole, like, I'm pretty sure this is one of the first bankruptcies ever to go into the courts. Um, but I also uh, am on the Committee of Affected Users so um, it's it, think of it as a giant class action lawsuit of 76,000 users. And so if there's any decisions to be made, they picked like a diverse group of individuals. Some were like businesses, some had like a lot of money, some had not so much money. Um, and so they kind of representing those users because it would just get so costly trying to like, for example, vote on something. Um, right. So, you know, we, we do our best to kind of make, ensure that A, the process is as quick as possible, B, that as little money is possible is spent and if it is it's you know making sure it's like spent on things that that maybe could have a a role to recover more funds um so yeah so that's kind of the things we did but i think what's wild is just like the whole story like quadriga's co-founders were engaged in criminal activities before launching the exchange right they were running fraud and ponzi schemes like and and you know this 2018 like it's kind of past the hated cowboy heydays it's past mount gox um, you'd think that it was like a little bit more on the up and up. And even like what Kardika did was they applied to FinTrack, which is like uh, FINRA, I believe, in the U.S., where, you know, they they applied for a money, let's say, you know, uh, a money service business. And then it looked all official because they applied and, and they were a money service business. And so people are like, huh, look at that. You know, they're they're going through the regulatory steps. So they look better. Oh, and then also he was doing so much fake trading at the beginning. It made it look like this exchange was the largest exchange in Canada. Like ninety percent, I think, at the, be- at the at the outset of all trades was like fake trades to make fake volume. So mm. people are like, "Oh, look at that! Look at that volume! Like this must be a, an exchange that's on the up and up because there's so many users, right?" Not your keys, not your coins, folks. Definitely. And it also makes me think, like, know what's going on under yeah. the covers. And we have yeah. we have options for that now. Like you may want your if you are going to go the route of having somebody custody custody it or getting yield or, you know, entering a lending agreement, go somewhere where they have proof of reserves and you've got yes. third parties attesting that the you assets like are actually letting? there. <laughs> exactly. I love the letting guys. I actually use their service, too. Um, yeah. Why wouldn't you select if you're going to go? If you need a custodian, right, <laughs> yeah. for financial services or whatever, why would you not select one 
that's voluntarily getting attested, right? It, it's just, we have this opportunity. Bitcoin allows for transparency and auditability. Why wouldn't we demand that out of financial services companies? A hundred percent. And I think what's really interesting too is like, okay, first, uh, like looking back, like what are the red flags? And there were a lot of red flags, right? Like there were withdrawal delays. Customers were unable to take out either crypto or dollars. And that's like, and you know, Reddit post and uh, Twitter posts of people having issues. That's something that you can still kind of do your own due diligence, like just Google, right? If you want to use a service, are people having trouble? Uh, arbitrage. Prices were totally out of balance. At one point, it was something like 25% arbitrage opportunity. If the market is inefficient, something's happening. Like there's a yep. reason for this inefficiency, right? It was because people couldn't withdraw. So they were trying to withdraw in a, in a whether it was, um, you know, cash del- was delayed so that they tried to withdraw crypto. And so obviously the crypto prices went up, right? You know, so make sure you're, you're just doing your own due diligence, right? And then also like what kind of communications are the exchanges or, or um or services providing to like, let's say whether it's an outage or something, just like, just, yeah, definitely check that out. And there's other things too. Like if you're a trader, like spread it out, go to a few different exchanges uh, that are reputable, of course. Uh, but I think ultimately, you know, it, it brings us into this whole self-custody perspective is like, if you're looking at it still this year, billions of user funds have been lost in exchanges and other third-party hacks, right? So as soon as you have this pooled group of funds, it becomes a honeypot, right? As we see from Quadriga, bankruptcies, proceedings take years to resolve. So you've lost access and you're probably getting pennies on the dollar. Or if there's, you know, an exchange loses funds, you might get a haircut where those losses are kind of subsidized across all consumers. And that happened with, um, was it Bit- Bitfinex or Bit- Bitmex? That makes, I think. And then just honestly, like you're going to lose access potentially. Maybe the exchange freezes your funds like in Canada, what happened during the truckers protest. Or maybe you're just seeing withdrawal delays, right? The exchange is undergoing maintenance, but you need that money now because you need to pay somebody or something, right? Or, or um, you know, there's a KYC request. Suddenly the rules change. People get paranoid and now you need to send a video and a picture and like write some text. It's, you know, you don't, have that access to your funds. So, um, and, and I think for like personal story time, you know, my grandma, she lost her childhood home and beautiful property in Poland because after the war, the borders moved and got shifted and that was no longer hers. Right. And that is personal property that just suddenly was no longer hers. And that's something that, you know, I took to heart. Um, you gotta be self-sovereign in this kind of age. Mags, you may be too far down the labyrinth to be able to answer this question, but is Gerald Cotton alive? <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of... <laughs> if you can't answer, just... No, I don't know. But it's funny because I used to think that he was alive a lot. Like I before I'd be like, oh yeah, 10% chance he's alive. But then now I think it's a lot smaller only because I... So before I learned that there's no freaking money left... I was like, oh, yeah, he totally is sitting on some beach. But when you actually like so the Ontario Securities Commission and they did this big deep dive on where the money went um, and they actually they called Quadriga a Ponzi scheme. And so they dug in and that's how we found that he lost all this money trading on this big shortfall, you know, and and that was the, the biggest chunk. So 
once I learned that really there isn't that much money to recover or to even find, it's kind of like, okay, so I don't think he's necessarily sitting on a beach somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Blink twice if he's alive. No, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> this isn't, uh, <laughs> isn't going to be aired on video. We'll, this will be our secret, folks. We'll never tell you what happened. I mean, the body is buried somewhere in on the east coast of Canada. So they just need to dig that body up. But um, that's something that I think the police need to do because I believe the the family will fight it. And that's not a good use of creditor funds. Because even let's say, let's say, you know, we spend a bunch of money to legally fight, have the body dug up. Um, if he's alive, we still don't have him. There's and no if he's money. Dead, there's no. Yeah. Like, yeah. And if he's dead, like, well, maybe he had his own money. I don't know. Something like that, that you could go after him. But the point is. Like even, you know, if he's alive, you got to find him. <laughs> and if he's dead, that doesn't help you recover money. So it's not the best use of funds. Something like running tracing, for example, is a better use of funds. Mags, let's close with a little firefighting chatter. Ooh, what, okay. How long have you been doing it? What do you enjoy most about it? Uh, so I have been a volunteer firefighter since 2019. Uh, I get to play with big toys. <laughs> Like, so we, we do a lot in our department. We're actually pretty fortunate in terms of like, we, we're pretty well funded. Uh, we've got the Jaws of Life, which is just so fucking cool. Like you get to cut up a car, you know, you, you get to crush it, spread it. It's just pretty fucking cool. Um, diversity of calls. Like we, I mean, obviously, you know, like there's the medical, there's the, you know, house fires, car fires. Um, we have some dive sites nearby. So like, it's just this diversity of things that keeps you on your toes. Um, mm-hmm. But I think like, too, like we are kind of the pillar of the community. Um, you know, we do pancake breakfast and, you know, fireworks. And it's just, it's a cool part to kind of contribute and make really strong friendships. And honestly, it's so nice to have, because my partner is also a firefighter, uh, just like to have two first responders in a house, wherever we are. It's pretty 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 great <laughs> yeah it's a badass skill set i totally yeah. resonate with the variety i'm yeah. driving into work most days thinking i have no idea what i'm gonna do today could pick some old ladies up off the floor could fight a house <laughs> fire could see a stroke or a heart yeah. attack could watch a quadriga documentary <laughs> have no idea what you're getting into but it is it's 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 a career you can do for it's yeah. a volunteer job or a career you could do for 30 years and not get bored because a lot of shit happens to homo sapiens and we get a front row seat <laughs> whenever it does. And so like so many Bitcoiners are moving to these remote or like smaller towns. And I think like it's a great way to to meet people in your community and contribute to your community and also pick up some pretty cool skills. I mean, it's it's hard sometimes. It's not like let's not sugarcoat it, you know. And, and it makes me a lot more aware of like, if I'm leaving the house, like, oh God, my dog, like if there's a fire, you know what I mean? Like you, you start to worry about those things. So, but maybe you're a little bit more conscious of like, you're, you know, you're driving down the highway and it's a shitty, uh, shitty weather today. You're like, okay, maybe I should slow down because this curve, we get a lot of frequent flyers on this curve. Like, okay, maybe not frequent flyers, but you know what I mean? Guys that wipe out on this particular curve. So I should yep. be a little bit more conscious about that um it's but but honestly like doing training like live fire training like when you're in a room and the whole room is filling up with fire like, it's just so fucking cool like you never get to do this otherwise it is it's crazy it turnout gear is an unbelievable thing you're sitting in a 300 <laughs> yeah. degree room wondering 
if I didn't have this cloth surrounding me or this plastic in front of my face, I would be yeah. cooked like a it's wearing, rotisserie hog. It's like a giant <laughs> oven mitt on your body. It is. It's pretty amazing it stuff. I, uh, I, you know what I want to get? Um, maybe, maybe I'd be willing to pay for it. I want to get a helmet that actually has a camera. Like when you're doing live fire, for example, training or something, because I think just seeing, you know, up close is pretty cool. Yeah. Relive some of the uh, <laughs> heroic experiences, throw it up on the TV at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> we have kind of a social media backout, so we, we wouldn't be, but something like training might go on our, 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 uh, our Facebook group. But uh, I don't know how you guys are with social media, but we're not allowed to post anything pretty much. Yeah, if we uh we would be in deep doo doo if we uh, yeah definitely nothing on scene on social media. yeah for sure no really there is there cool. is an element of yeah. when you sign up for this sort of service like there is an image to uphold like you are for sure. an ambassador for for sure whatever agency you're a part of and um, yeah that's why no one will ever know where we work right Josh <laughs> exactly <laughs> I, I was just thinking about saying that yeah that's why exactly why we don't tell anyone where we're from. But some of the training stuff, like, uh, it's pretty cool to post, I think, uh, you know, uh, because like you need to figure, like, like I said, most of the departments are volunteer. So people don't understand just the breadth of what volunteer firefighters do. Right. Uh, yeah. and so, so many, some of the training videos, like live fire training, it's like, oh, wow. Or like, you know, extrication, like it's pretty awesome. We, right now, I think we've got five cars that in our, uh, we've got a little depot where we do our training. We, we have a training yard that we built recently and, you know, we practice cutting up cars and stuff like that, you know, like just watching, you know, the car get crushed or pull, pulling off a door and like, yeah, little girls like me can, you know, pull off this massive door. It's pretty cool. And you know, Hey, we have more ladies. We can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing. Don't let the men have all the fun. <laughs> it's true. It's pretty lopsided. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. We're actually pretty, we're 30% female in our forest, which is, I think, pretty high. It's very high. Um, yeah, there is, there's not, there's not a lot. Of, I think it, I think it's trending up. I think it's getting yeah, more probably. Uh, gender diverse. No doubt about it. Cause like, you know, we say on this show, 70% of our job is medical or paramedics yeah. who also dress up as firemen and <laughs> it is a little bit of a shame that nine out of ten people to walk into your living room to manage your chest pain are dudes like it's good yeah. to have diversity because the, the job the, is uh, heavily medical at least for in the sure area we're at, and the females tend to have pretty good bedside manner usually they do yeah little female <laughs> influence here or there can be a good thing <laughs> absolutely uh, the firehouse maybe could benefit from it place can get a little out of hand can yeah. get it can can look and can look and smell and sound a lot like a hog pen every once in a while right, Josh? i would characterize that exactly the way you just did your own especially the bunk room effect. especially the bunk room at 7 a.m it it smells exactly i mean it, i'm drawing maybe like an ape house at the zoo but a hog pen would characterize it well mags thank you so much for your time we covered like a third of what was on the list. We'll have you back on again. There's so much awesome. we can cover, but I think we did, you know, do the energy piece justice and it's a really important topic to cover because the implications of what Bitcoin could do to uh, energy composition and uh, just building out the grid in a more robust, inclusive global manner is the implications are significant. So we look forward to talking more about it. Have a great rest of your evening. Hopefully no Thank tones you. tonight for you. Yeah, I know. I've already had two. I feel like it's a day where we could have a third one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If 
it'd be hard as a volunteer, like waking up at my house in the middle of the night. I'd be like, no way I'm going back to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But if it's something exciting, you're like, fuck it, I'm going. (laughs) But obviously you shouldn't be picking your calls, but certainly some you get up faster than others. That'd be pretty sweet to just say yes or no. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's always really stressful too. And like, if you live in a smaller community and you recognize the address, right? Right. Then you're like, shit, I got to get down there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. All right, Max, have a great evening. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Bye. Take care. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast. Thank you.